Hank Green's first book, An Absolutely Remarkable Thing, was released in 2018, the story of a young woman thrown into and then growing her fame as the world suddenly has to deal with massive changes in the form of contagious dreams and mysterious 10-foot-tall robots that have appeared in every major city. The Associated Press said it was a thrilling journey that takes a hard look at the power of fame and our willingness to separate a person from the brand. Book Reported said it was perhaps as honest a look as we will ever get into the phenomenon of cyberfame. And the San Francisco Chronicle said, sparkling with mystery, humor, and the uncanny, this is a fun read, but beneath its effervescent tone, more complex themes are at play. Well, now that novel is out in paperback or at your library, and also for cheap in audio form. And the sequel and conclusion of the story, A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor, is out to sparkling reviews. Hank wanted his publisher to sponsor a ton of small podcasts, but they said that was too weird, so instead, Hank took 5% of his advance from the book and did it himself. Library of the Journal Star Review said, Throughout this adventurous, witty, and compelling novel, Green delivers sharp social commentary on the power of social media and both the benefits and horrendous consequences that follow when we give too much of ourselves to technology. And the book will be out for everyone on July 7th in physical, audio, and e-book form wherever books are sold. Or you could just go to HankGreen.com and that will get you where you need to go to get your copy. Hello, and welcome to the Nautcast Podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 117th episode of the Nautcast titled Shadow of a Doubt Part 3, an analysis of A Clash of Kings Davos 2, in which Stannis and Davos continue their conversation. Man, how many parts is this this analysis of A Clash of Kings Davos 2 going to be? We're never getting out of this chapter alive. Well, certainly Courtney Penrose isn't. <laughs> well, at least we have company for this part of it, folks. We're so happy to welcome back to the cast. You may know him from his excellent YouTube channel. Please welcome back Matt, a.k.a. Joe Magician. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, guys. I'm really happy to uh, spend a couple hours just absolutely destroying Stannis and dragging <laughs> his name through the mud. Uh, Perfect. You can, of course, find me on my YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash Joe Magician. Um, I'm doing weekly uh, live streams. Um, as well as some Crusader Kings 2 stuff. And every once in a while I'm doing videos, but, you know, <laughs> those are a l little harder to come up with than just talking to a camera for two hours. But, yeah, I'm very excited to do this. I've been watching each one of these parts um, <laughs> with bated breath, loving it as Emmett destroys Stannis and... The catharsis has been great. Glad, <laughs> Glad to, to provide it. And now you that. get to join in. What could possibly yes. be better? <laughs> Absolutely. It's going to be a lot of fun to actually unpack Stannis, analyze Stannis, not destroy Stannis. We are here to provide objective analysis to Stannis such, of Such House careful Baratheon. euphemistic verbs. Davos should be so <laughs> proud of you. Oh, that's good. That's because he's the guy. I can who... hear your patron count going down as you say that, Jeff. Such a politician. <laughs> Good, good, good to hear. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King Wolfman, Zach, Grand Master Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, 
Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N. Lord Travis, Master Ships in War of the Waves, Captain of the War Galley, Nightwolf, the ship that stalks the seven seas and wielder of the Valyrian Steel Trident Summoner, the blade that brings the Deep Ones. Sir Keith J, Master Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archspacer June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet, the other rebel woman, and Mistress of Whispers. Lord Micah, who adds the Quilled Lion, Warder of the West, Herald of the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bane Fort, and the, K- and the Kraken's Bane to his title. Lord James, the Gem of those Promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zine of Valyrium, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Word of East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Amos, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Canoli, Sir Sosadelica, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud Soy Boy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dance with Dragons, Sir K.W. Dent, Elsie the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the Thedes and Gentle Thems, Lord Quint Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively Not Serving as a Spy for several unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to, to further the secret Blackfire style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive Small Council. Haldabrid, the waiter for Tiwa, A.A. Braun, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked, the Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee, the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings. Shama the Slayer, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kent, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, The Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall, Harrison, Absent, Shipwrecked, Still in the Jade Sea, Get Rescued Soon, Buddy, Grave, Rob Stark, The Cadaver King and Horror of Heron Hall, Olaf, Proponent of Establishing a Feudal, Pseudo-Democratic System of Great Councils, Wherein Every Count votes. Sir Tim, the knight who is guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane and Prince Targaryen and Prince Tar- and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen's sad Prophecy Boys Club. Lord Jean, the splendid Master of Coin, Warden of Tampa Bay, who claims that the recent repairs made to his enormous pleasure barge came after a close friend of his named Royal T. Regery, is that his name correct? Left him a quite a large inheritance. And our two newest members of the Small Council. Yes, again, Two newest members of the small council, Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan, and Pat Ironwood, the blood royal and guardian of the Boneway. Thank you to our counselors very much, and welcome to Anna and Pat. Thank you to our counselors as always, and such a nice welcome to Anna and Pat. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. And our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three ducking novels, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir John of the Misty Isle, a Sworn Sword patron who asks, Hi guys, loving the month of Stannis and Davos. Keep up the good, the wor- keep up the good work. I have a question about one of the most maligned storylines from the latter part of the show and how something similar could happen in the books. I am, of course, talking of the White Hunt from Season 7. The whole premise of the coolest characters trekking up north to kidnap a white and persuade the rest of the realm the threat is real is, of course, ridiculous. But someone, probably John is in a position in the books to do something similar when he comes back to life. Do you think the two dead rangers he has stashed in the ice cells could be used to convince the South that the others are real if they were to reanimate? 
It wouldn't even be the first time this has been tried, since Elsie Mormont sent a hand south with Sir Alistair in the first book, and only Tyrion's dislike of that particular envoy stops the hand being presented at court. What are your thoughts, or do you have any ideas on how the Dead Rangers will play a role? That's a great question. Thank you so much. And what do you think of that, Jeff? What's going to what's gonna be the payoff for those Ted, Dead Rangers, John Hestash and the Icells? He even suggested to the other leaders in the Night's Watch that he might be waiting for them to reanimate to communicate with them in some way. I mean, I've always like really wanted that Independence Day scene from the movie where, you, of course, the uh, the scientist gets like killed and like uh, becomes reanimated, and, and the aliens speak through him. He's like, "Release me!" That's kind of what I want, just from the from the uh, <laughs> the dead whites or these former wildlings who have potentially been possessed by the by the others. Uh, in, in all seriousness, I, this is actually one of the storylines that I I don't know what George is going to do with it. It seems likely that he has some pretty clear ideas of what they're going to be used for beyond simply being a means of communicating with the others. I do wonder whether that'll be one aspect of it, but I think that there's the potential that I don't know. I I mean, the, there's Lady Gwyn and and Yolk Boy have the great theory about John being thrown into the ice cells as well, which preserves his body, and that's uh, something that. I, I could see happening for John in particular. In terms of like going north, maybe they reveal something about the others that sends John going north. I think hmm. my issue with that is that I think John's story starts to progress south after he gets resurrected. I don't think he's long for the Night's Watch thereafter. As much as the show kind of cut some corners in terms of getting to the plot point. I think John getting resurrected and then going north is not in the cards as much as John getting resurrected and going south in order to claim his the, the throne of Winterfell and become the king of the north is more in the cards. And I don't think there's going to be something similar to the White Hunt that we saw in, in season seven of the show. I think it's more likely a, a show invention in order to bring a dragon to the others. I think that was the primary plot purpose of it, as well as to increase the bond between John and Daenerys on a character level. But a lot of these things, I, I feel like I'm just kind of like bullet pointing here because I don't have any like really strong substantive ideas. But I know that both of you gentlemen probably have better and more substantive ideas than me, Jeff. I don't know about all that, but I i mean, I think the the problem with the White Hunt in the show, I think, wasn't even really the just the, the the idea as boiled down and presented. The more the problem was is there was a, kind of a climactic event for the season, and that gets back to just season seven kind of just being awkwardly structured because they were dealing with fewer episodes than normal. So it was like, oh, this is the plot point in which we're all hinging this? This seems kind of hacky. And yeah, I think in the show in the in the books, I think it's likely to be one of multiple plot points. I could definitely see John using this to convince somebody. Maybe Daenerys gets convinced in this regard. I could see yeah. that. Uh, I but I I don't think Cersei is going to be in power in quite the trajectory and for quite the time that happens in the show because Young Grift and all the characters associated with him just change up that timeline completely. So I really doubt it's going to be involved in a convince King's Landing. Which I don't think we're going to see a white transported all the way down there. <laughs> But yeah, I, I think obviously those uh, those whites chained up in the ice cells are there for a reason. I can definitely see John making use of them in you know either in a logistical way or just kind of a, a more kind of spooky insight into what's going on in the north kind of way. Because I also agree with you. I think John is is his geographic trajectory is moving south from here. Even though I think he'll probably be involved in you know kind of a mental spiritual level what's going on north of the wall still. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Matt? <sighs> uh yeah the white hunt was a thing that happened in the show like Emmett said it was um more an action highlight than like any sort of logical thing that needed to happen except to like to backfill the idea that they would like you said they wanted the dragons to go north right they wanted somebody to figure it out but then george 
uh, has addressed this already the idea that the white can you bring like a whited hand to king's landing well no it basically fell apart and rotted and it sort of fell apart so that kind of introduces this idea that there is like a radius for how f far away you can bring a whited body part before it starts to fall apart and king's landing has been shown to be too far basically so how that's even going to work I, I don't really know i think it will instead of being bringing someone north of the wall in order to go get a white and bring them back i imagine that the the two whites in the ice cell if they're used that way would be just to show somebody that came north hmm. instead of this seven samurai ridiculous battle and running sequence that went beyond there although there is one thing in the south that very much will prove their point that the undead are back and that this is a thing and that thing is, of course, Lady Stoneheart, hmm. who, unlike Beric, can no longer pass as a human being. You see her, you know that she is something else, that she is something beyond the proof of concept. If Lady Stoneheart becomes a known quantity, and maybe the Northerners and John or something like that can create this linkage, like, look, necromancy's right here. We're sure. saying necromancy's beyond the wall, too. And it's like, okay, well, that's not such a big stretch that... That it's one of those weird ripples out that maybe like the cutting of Stoneheart made that plot a lot harder than it had to be. Hmm. People have also mentioned in the chat about Gregor Clegane or Sir Robert Strong being revealed, and that could also be a, a method that George uses to be like, hey, there's something off. Magic might actually exist to people who are south of the wall who might not have exposure to that or to Danny's dragons in the east before, of course, the others come south and, of course, before Danny's dragons come west. So I think that'll be a good venue by George that George will explore for how the South reacts to the entrance of magic in the series. So we'll see how it happens. So thank you so much, Sir John of the Misty Owl, for your question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You're welcome to become a sworn sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash ASOIAF, where you can find show notes, special posts, and bonus episodes like most recently, Part 2 of The Second Coming, our four-part analysis of the Winds of Winter chapter, The Forsaken. It was definitely kind of like my like favorite uh, Patreon episode that we've done to date. I used to love the Greyjoy episode. I thought that was just terrific. And it still is a really good episode. Uh, but not to like kind of like pump our chest too much. I, I, this episode is just really, really good. And, and, and you put a, a ton of work into there doing all the, the, the research and the reading for all the the literary influences that you bring in, which really kind of made this chapter and analysis very, very fulfilling to go Well, you did a great job everything. editing it, sir. So, you know, it's, it was an excellent episode. And thank you so much for for uh, supporting us here uh, on, on the Patreon and making those kind of episodes possible. We really appreciate it. We absolutely do. So if you guys are watching this now and you are a sworn sort of higher patron, then this episode is available for you. If you're a poor fellow, it'll be out tomorrow morning around seven o'clock in the morning. So get on that if you're one of our patrons or check out our Patreon if you would like to see what we're all about. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Davos, I know it was a whole week ago, he had perhaps the best conversation in all of A Song of Ice and Fire with Stannis Baratheon. Let's find out what happens with Davos Seaworth in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Davos 2, Part 3. Stannis and Davos arrive back to a busy camp after their little chit-chat. As this is a Stannis camp, you've got an orderly row of tents. Weapons are stacked neatly, but there was the smell of horseshit around. I wonder if that's speaking to... Stannis orders Alistair Florin and the rest of his useless lords to get fucking lost for a while. Come back in an hour for a war council, if you really want to. The king then orders Davos and Melisandre to accompany him to the king's pavilion. The tent had to be large, since it was there his lord's bannermen came to council. Yet, there was nothing grand about it. 
It was a soldier's tent of heavy canvas, dyed the dark yellow that sometimes passed for gold. Only the ye- only the royal banner that streamed atop the center pole marked it as its as a king's. That and the guards without, queen's men leaning on tall spears with the badge of the fireheart sewn over their own. Grooms helped everyone dismount. The standard Melisander was carrying it staked in the ground too. Devin Seaworth and an older squire then assist with refreshment. Would anyone like something? Cold water. Cups for two. Davos, attend me. My lady, I shall send for you when I acquire you. As the king commands, Melisandre bowed. Brilliant. Love it. After the brightness of the morning, the interior of the pavilion seemed cool and dim. Stannis seated himself on a plain wooden camp stool and waved Davos to another. One day I may even make you a lord, smuggler, if only to irk Celtigar and Florent. You will not thank me, though. It will mean you must suffer through these councils and vain interest in the braying of mules. Why do you have them if they serve no purpose? The mules love the sound of their own braying. Why else? And I need them to haul my cart. Oh, to be sure, once in a great while, some useful notion is put forth. But not today, I think. Devon sets the tray down and Davos asks him what he meant by the counsel he's about to hear from his lord's bannerman. While Stannis thinks Valarian will want to storm, storms end, Eshmael will want to continue besieging the castle, those idiot young men, knights and lords, will want to go down the single combat route. The king finished his water. What would you have me do, smuggler? Davos considered a moment before he answered. Strike for King's Landing at once. <laughs> and leave storms end untaken. Sir Courtenay does not have the power to harm you. The Lannisters do. A siege would take too long, single combat is too chancy, and an assault will cost thousands of lives with no certainty of success. And there is no need. Once you dethrone Joffrey, this castle must come to you with all the rest. It is said about the camp that Lord Tywin Lannister rushes west to rescue Lannisport from the vengeance of the Northmen. You have a passing clever father, Devon, the king told the boy standing by his elbow. He makes me wish I had more smugglers in my service and fewer lords. Still, there is a need in Stannis' mind. He can't live with the idea that people will say he left Storm's End untaken. You see, people don't love Stannis. Shocking if you've been listening to our podcast. They follow him because of fear. Defeat would mean bad shit to that whole trying to inspire fear in people thing. He needs Storm's End and soon. You see, Doran Martell is behind him now with his armors blocking the Prince's Pass and the Boneweg. And then there's the whole issue of Highgarden. He sent Sir Errol Florent and Sir Parman Crane to treat with Mace Tyrell, but those two bros have not returned. Maybe Loris made it there first and poisoned Mace Tyrell against Stannis' envoys. All the more reason to take King's Landing as soon as we may. Salador San told me. Salador San thinks only of gold. Stannis exploded. His head is full of dreams of the treasures he fancies lies under the Red Keep. So let us hear no more of Salador San. The day I need a military council from a Lysine brigand is the day I put up my crown and take the black. The king made a fist. Are you here to serve me, smuggler? Or to vex me with arguments. I'm yours, Davos said. Stannis then proceeds to talk about how a 20-year-old kid by the name of Lord Meadows is second in command to Sir Courtney. If Penrose accidentally, by chance, who knows what will happen, kind of die, then this guy would be in charge, and he'd probably surrender. Davos wonders at this, stating that 20 was practically Stannis' age at Storm's End during Robert's Rebellion. You sure he's not hard-headed like you, your grace? Stannis is fairly sure that Meadows is not the same man that Stannis was. So anyways, about Courtney, how is he supposed to accidentally by chance? Who knows what will happen? You can't prove shit die. He seems like he's been doing squats lately. Very healthy. As to how, notice that Renly was also doing squats too. Very healthy. The night is dark and full of terror, Stannis says. Davos Seaworth felt the small hairs rising on the back of his neck. My lord, I do not understand you. I do not require understanding. Only your service. 
Sir Courtney will be dead within the day. Melisandre is seen in the flames of the future. Her death and the manner of it. He will not die in nightly combat, needless to say. Stannis held out his cup and Devon filled it again from the flagon. Her flames do not lie. She saw Renly's doom as well. On Dragonstone she saw it and told Selyse, Lord Valarian and your friend Sadler are summoned to have you sail against Joffrey. But Melisandre told me that if I went to Storm's End, I would win the best part of my brother's power. And she was right. But, but, Davos stammered, Lord Renly only came here because you had laid siege to the castle. He was marching toward King's Landing before against the Lannisters. He would have... Stannis starts heckling Davos about his confusion. Renly came to Storm's End for his doom. Besides, Melisandre saw another vision in the flames, where Renly smashed Stannis' army under the walls of King's Landing. It was a kill-or-be-killed scenario. Davos, you see? Not that Stannis had anything to do with Renly's extremely timely, not suspicious who did a death. But Davos' perspective is different. What about free will? What if destiny is a lie? What if you two joined together to fight in the hashtag war against the Lannisters? Besides, if Melisandre saw two visions in the flames, they both can't be true, right? That's just some horseshit, your grace. King Stannis pointed a finger. There you are, Anya Knight. Some lights cast more than one shadow. Stand before the night fire and you'll see for yourself. The flames shift and dance, never still. The shadows grow tall and short, and every man casts a dozen. Some are fainter than others, that's all. Well, men cast their shadows across the future as well. One shadow or many. Melisandre sees them all. That kind of still sounds like some horseshit, your grace, but we're pressing on. Stannis knows that no one loves Melisandre, especially Davos. Stannis' lord's bandmen are also critical of her. Estramont doesn't want the flaming heart and wants to go to the hashtag war with the crown stag of old. Guyard Morgan says that women can't be standard bearers. <laughs> no, no, it's not misogyny. It's just the woman part of it. You know what I mean? Meanwhile, others whisper about Melisandre participating in war councils and spending the night in Stannis's tent. She's only there to serve Davos. Need No need to fret. Serves how? Davos asked, dreading the answer. As needed. The king looked at him. And you? I... Davos licked his lips. I'm yours to command. What would you have me do? Davos is going to do something he's very familiar with. He's only going to be getting at the storm's end, passing to the castle unseen. You gonna be able to do that for me, Davos? Sure. Tonight? Yeah, tonight. Small boat. No black betha. Davos ain't sure about this anymore. He thinks he should speak up. He has sons and wonders what in the world Melisandre did to Stannis. The king notices and asks him why he's so quiet. And should remain so, Davos told himself. Yet instead he said, Malige, you must have the castle. I see that now. But surely there are other ways. Cleaner ways. Let Sir Courtney keep the bastard boy and he may well yield. I must have the boy, Davos. Must. Melisandre has seen that under flames as well. Davos groped for some other answer. Storm's End holds no knight who can match Sir Gayard or Lord Karen or any of a hundred others sworn to your service. This single combat. Could it be that Sir Courtney seeks for a way to yield with honor, even if it means his own life? A troubled look crossed the king's face like a passing cloud. More like he plans some treachery. That will be, there will be no combat of champions. Sir Courtney was dead before he ever threw that glove. The flames do not lie, Davos. Yet they require me to make them true he thought. It had been a long time since Davos Seaworth felt so sad. 
And that is A Clash of Kings, Davos 2, Part 3. Thank you, gentlemen, for reading the parts for the synopsis. Again, not doing a lot of synopsizing for these uh, these Davos parts that we're doing. I'm really enjoying all the dialogue. I think we'll probably and pick up a thank you, bit. Jeff, for doing the part of Stannis as wonderfully as always. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. So it seems that we've progressed beyond the small insignificant matters of justice and prophecy and progressed right onto other insignificant matters of destiny, free will, and more prophecy. This is not... Let me put, rephrase. This does not feel as dense as our last section, but it still contains a lot of plot and the character and character beats to chew on. So, what do you guys think of this chapter or this part of the chapter? Well, we are picking up right where we left off last week, literally, but also in terms of theme and character. Stannis and Davos are continuing to dig deeper into all the complex issues being raised by this standoff at Storm's End. The political issues, the military issues, the prophetic issues, all of them swirl together into a single ethical debate. As with previous Stannis and Davos scenes, one gets the sense of the entire story orbiting this because it informs all these different conflicts. So much is at stake, yet George never loses sight of the peculiar, peculiar and particular intimacy at work between the pauper and the prince. But I'm curious to know what our guest thinks. What do you think about this section of the chapter, Matt? Stannis is the worst. And deserves the flames. Oh, you just got lost from the stream. <laughs> whoa, whoa, cut off. Weird. That's what you're all hoping for, right? To take this a little bit more seriously and pro- perhaps a less on brand. This conversation shows the tragic downfall of Stannis Baratheon. He struggles to find the true path to what he really wants and instead keeps walking into rakes like a teeth grinding shot, like a teeth grinding sideshow bob. While Davos desperately tries to steer him away from the next rake to the forehead. Meanwhile, Melisandre assures him. It's all for the greater good. Keep taking those rakes, Stannis. But some part of Stannis knows what he's doing is wrong, that he's literally playing with fire by going down the path Melisandre has given him. The point of this conversation for Stannis has really little to do with what Stannis has to say. He doesn't care what Davos has to suggest. The know-it-all Stannis can't wait to show off for Davos that he has already calculated what all his lords will say what he should do, including Davos, of course. What he wants, what he needs, is reassurance from his external moral hard drive. He wants to hear Melisandre's plan bounce off somebody who isn't completely tied up in their own ego and anger after being totally embarrassed by Courtney Penrose. He wants Davos to suggest killing Courtney, to know that what he is doing is logical and right. This is where the story for Stannis and many other high-profile characters is swirling down into, into a down it's going down (laughs) what is the limit of how far you will go when you believe the fate of an entire world is hanging on your success or failure isn't the throne of westeros and the power to beat back the unending darkness worth the life of i don't know one stubborn knight who won't yield storm's end to a superior force boy that scenario sounds familiar (laughs) i don't know where i've heard that before stannis needed renly's troops more than he needed his brother he's the prince that was promised after all and yet there is a cloud of doubt across his face when Davos challenges him about Courtney and Renly, moments that give Stannis pause. If this is right, if killing your brother, taking your nephew into captivity as an almost certain future sacrifice, killing a knight doing his duty and protecting an innocent is just and right, then why can't Stannis sleep? Why does it feel wrong? Why is he looking to Davos to reassure him and be the voice of reason he can no longer hear? Why is he, Why can't he stop thinking about a peach? instead of the lives he is going to save from the darkness from his grand throne. Stannis has become the magician Faust. He has made a deal with a red witch for the power he needs, and is trying desperately not to see the price he has paid for it, his soul. Hmm. 
So all interesting points and ones that I'm looking forward to unpacking for this part of the, <laughs> the section of the uh, the chapter. And uh, you, to, in our li live stream chat from last week, so if you guys don't know, we do every single episode of you are audio only on YouTube uh, every week now, which is a lot of fun. In our live stream chat from last week, Sir Frank B., our small council king's justice, brought up the question of why we were skewering Stannis' conception of justice, justice so much when Stannis is an improvement, an objective improvement from almost every other royal figure in Westeros. I've been thinking a lot about that question. Thanks, Frank. I fucking hate thinking about anything. <laughs> the answer from my perspective, I think, after like thinking through this is, is twofold. I think there should be a correction to the fan idea that Stannis is a justice robot who is animated only to reward good behavior and punish evil behavior and people. As we've attempted to say here on the Nightcast podcast since the Clash of Kings prologue and onward, it's a profound misread of Stannis as a character and robs the richness that Martin puts into Stannis to just focus on his just vacillating between just and unjust behavior and his treatment of that. The second reason why we shade Stannis on the question of justice is the hypocrisy angle. Yes, I, I do think it's an actual shame that hypocrisy is the only modern sin, as some writers have put it. All the same, you get judged against what you publicly stand for or against. Stannis is always going on about how he'll bring justice to Westeros. It was just what he did to Davos. Justice, justice, justice. If that's what you're constantly on about and you fail to live up to that high standard you're putting forward, readers should be holding this character to his own standard, especially when he fails to live up to his own standard. And that's exactly what we'll do here. Begging your king to live up to his own goddamn standard or Lorite standard. It's God. It's frustrating, but it's great. It makes for fantastic character work for this particular part of the chapter and it's all lovely and continues our conversation from last week with Stannis and Davos continue to tassel tassel is that a word to tangle with each other and in order to tussle tussle there you go there's the word i'm looking for tussle with each other <laughs> in order to drive home who these characters are and their plots going forward i think that's perfectly put i, th I completely agree with that i think it's it's easy as you say to point out that sometimes hypocrisy is just kind of the easiest knee-jerk sin to point out but i also think as we're going to get into a little more in the episode the frustration with stannis is that he does clearly know better than he's doing like, there were moments when his intelligence and empathy creep out, and you go, oh, okay, so that's what you really think, but then why isn't that reflected in what's happening here? And that, I think, is, is the unique frustration, where I do think he's clearly better than, you know, Joffrey, or even, like, <laughs> Randall Tarley, but he also... There are moments when the guard comes down where it's like, you, you, can, you, could, you could potentially be a vessel for serious changes in how power works in Westeros, but you're shutting that down a lot of the time because it would also inconvenience you. And I think that's a very particular character study and one I think has a, has a lot of relevance to real-world politics as well. And I think that's, as you're saying, it's part of what makes Stannis so fascinating. But of course, in this chapter, we are specifically kind of filtering Stannis through Davos and filtering both Stannis and Davos through their kind of changing political and military circumstances. Where we left off last time, Stannis was mourning Renly. He was swearing he will go to his grave thinking of his brother's peach. And then he and Davos ride into the reason he went to war on Renly anyway. The big, powerful army that now follows Stannis, with all their attendant sounds and smells. As in the Riverlands, back in the Clash of Kings that Jeff talked about so well, pleasant and unpleasant smells are commingling. The stench of dung persists beneath the smell of cooking meat, because this is all going to turn to shit. <laughs> Stannis snaps out a dismissal to the other lords, once more allowing his understandable disdain for them, because they do suck, to infect his style of public kingship. They approach Stannis' tent, which George describes as large but not grand. It's a soldier's tent, with no adornments to catch the guy. The scale is the only thing that's, you know, impressive about it. This is, the, of course, the exact opposite of Renly's tent. 
And back we go to the duality of Stannis. On the one hand, there is an admirable lack of pretense here. Stannis has no time for Renly's gaudy expressions of wealth lifting him up above everyone else. On the other hand, Renly didn't rely on those overwhelming visual signifiers of power just out of ego or because that was his personal style. It was effective politics. In a world in which dyed fabric is costly and, you know, mass media is not a thing, the distinct orgiastic explosion of color out of the brown countryside that defined Renly's camp was immensely effective. It made him look like a god-king, Garth Greenhand reborn, more convincingly really than Stannis's quite literal assumption of god-king status signaled by that relore fiery heart. As is so often the case, what makes Stannis more admirable than his peers, as Frank was saying on one hand, also cuts him off from their level of support. And at this point, he has to know that. I think he's very aware of that, and it does feel kind of intentional in some aspects. We'll talk about that in a second. I think part of Renly's appeal was to the biological and ideological heirs to Garth Greenhands and the chivalry of the South that Garth personified and Renly appealed to. Certainly, the appeal extended beyond the nobility as Renly's army was massive, 80 to 100,000 strong, and there were tens of thousands of common soldiers in the army. But Maribel points out in A Feast for Crows that the common soldiers who then later become broken men in the story he's telling Brienne and Patrick Payne and Howe Hunt generally aren't volunteering for their service. As he says, almost all of these soldiers are common born, simple folk who had never been more than a mile from the house where they were born until the day some lord came round to take them off to war. I have to imagine that's part of the dynamic with the army Renly put together, a kind of combination of nobles enthralled with the chivalric optics, coupled with those pressed into service by those enthralled nobles. And I'm kind of driving at this point because, as I point out, it's the common soldiers who end up sticking around with Stannis and believing in his cause long after it's advantageous to do so. Why? Well, I think the tent might be a good example of why this is the case. It's not entirely clear whether Stannis is making a deliberate statement with his choice of tentage or whether it's the utility of having a soldier's tent that Stannis is actually doing here. Be it accidental or intentional, that appeals to these common dudes. An officer who isn't wearing the gaudy armor of your Alistair Florence, who isn't partaking in the fine foods and evidence at the Caswell Feast, that appeals to some of these small folk soldiers. You might be in the army because you've been forced at sword point to join up, abolish selective service, my friends, but these draftees still look at Stannis and think, that's my guy. Whatever doubts his lords might nurse, the common men seemed to have faith in their king. Stannis had smashed Mance Raider's wildlings at the wall and cleaned Asha and her ironborn out of Deepwood Mott. He was Robert's brother, victor in a famous sea battle off Fair Isle, the man who had held Storm's End all through Robert's rebellion. And he bore a hero's sword, the enchanted blade Lightbringer, whose glow lit up the night. So I think the tent is kind of a double-edged sword. Yes, it makes Stannis less the god-king that Renly was and also less appealing to the nobility but it makes him more endearing to the small folk who, again, as we were saying, and as I was saying in part two, he really should have made the strong appeal to in order to develop his army from that. What's really fascinating about Stannis' tent is not only that it has no adornments, it is not gaudy or it doesn't show off his power, but that's probably not what he's going for. In this chapter and others, he struggles to articulate what those who serve him even really like about him. No, it's his keen sense of justice. He's going to bring law and order back to <laughs> Westeros. Oh, no, 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 no. It's that he fear him. Oh, okay, okay, Stannis. No, it's that he's the one true king. No, it's, it's because he's going to save all their lives from the darkness with his amazing leadership. Stannis has a simple tent because he doesn't want to be like Robert and Renly, not to make the common folk love him. And yet it only serves to add to his confusion at what his appeal is. I think if you gave him a hundred tries, 
he would not guess that his choice in having a normal tent is something that is normal <laughs> that his common soldiers like about him. He is baffled at their loyalty to him as to why he is as baffled at their loyalty to him as he is to why so few of his peers like him. Renly would look at Stannis' tent and understand how that simple choice is endearing to the common troops. Stannis Stance looks at it and say, well, it keeps my uh, keeps my bald spot dry. <laughs> who, who, who Funny callback, us. though, when we're talking about in A Dance with Dragons, Melisandre criticizes Jon for this exact same thing hmm. when he takes the former quarters of Don Noy instead of one of the towers. Internally, she thinks about this a lot, that Jon is screwing everything up. He is not um, he's not taking the trappings of power. He is not making himself seem impressive. And you have to imagine that as Melisandre comes back with the standard that she helps sew, and she made sure the men all have the, the fiery hearts sew, uh, sewed onto their chest, and she comes back and looks at that tent and goes, he's, he's not getting it. I'm trying to make him seem like the savior of the world. I'm trying to make him seem magical. And he just wants to continue hanging out in the same tent he's hung out for for 20 years. And this is how he's being very dangerous at ignoring the powers of symbols and authority and how the trappings of power are a necessary act one might say a shadow on the wall <laughs> hey oh oh imagine how frustrated she really must be looking at this and all of her lessons on how being an effective and impressive ruler are being wasted a side note though her perfect pupil the one she probably should have picked because her message would resonate completely is renly renly would absolutely see the value in her advice that she gives to john she would he would absolutely adopt everything she's saying and play the part perfectly to be a Zorahai in a way that Stannis never will because he thinks it's stupid and Renly understands the value of PR. I think that's a great point. Imagine that combination. But of course, the thing is, while Renly would love being on board with Melisandre in terms of image politics, the specifics about her faith would make him, make him tilt his head and go, okay, but I don't think I want any part of that, though. Like, I'm not the eschatological confrontation between good and evil. I'm here to have a good time, okay? So you know, take the apocalypse talk elsewhere, please. And so that I mean, Melisandre found a very good people for that sort of thing with Stannis, even though, as you, I think, put, put so well... He's learned nothing from her in terms of how to look like a god king. Jeff was talking about that back in Davos 1, that he's throwing off, you know, the look, the stage managing of everything because he's just growling and grumbling and he just doesn't <laughs> look like a messiah because he doesn't want to. And, you know, he says it himself in Storm of Swords. The Lord of Light should have picked Robert. Robert looked the part. And I just don't. And what makes Stannis such a well-written character, in my opinion, is that this dynamic persists down to every little detail about him. Even his drink order. Robert was an alcoholic whose love for booze is what killed him. So, naturally, Stannis ran in the opposite direction. Way too far. He drinks literal salt water. This is so funny to me, in the way that Stannis' image often is, because George tips it right over into parody. Imagine being so committed to being the stoic, sober, straight-edge member of the family that you choke down salt water to own the libs. Stannis is like Aaron Damper in that way, who also drinks salt water. Both Stannis and Aaron refuse to realize what it means that the rest of the culture doesn't work this way. Even Davos, so devoted to Stannis that he calls his king his god, wishes that his water, taken straight, as he puts it, was wine instead. Yet still, Davos remains loyal, because of who brings them the water. Devon Seaworth, the smuggler's son, become a king's squire, upward mobility embodied. That's what's at stake for Davos, more than the crown itself that Stannis removes and hands to Devon. Yet Davos's sons will burn to make the dream come true. 
The way in which Davos is always standing on a political knife's edge, good fortune on one side and the abyss on the other, is captured in the dialogue as well. Stannis declares that one day he might make his smuggler a lord, a dramatic change to the rules of power in Westeros. But he will only be doing so to piss the other lords off, and he doesn't think Davos will actually get anything out of it. Stannis is simultaneously a revolutionary and a reactionary, forever complicating his character. He is forever backing his way selfishly into admirable positions. Stannis wants to lift Davos up, not as part of an overall political program that speaks to the problems of power in Westeros, a la Beric Dondarrion, but rather because Stannis hates his peers and wants to see the <laughs> looks on their faces when he makes them talk to Davos all day. And indeed, the look on Axel Florence's face when Stannis humbles him before Davos in A Storm of Swords is very satisfying for the reader as well as Stannis. But George specifically links Stannis to Baylor the Blessed in that scene. And Baylor the Blessed did, you know, some admirable things, but he also did some really wretched things and ultimately is framed by George as a wayward obsessive more than a role model. His devotion to his religion inspired some great acts of charity along the way, no question, but ultimately manifested as paranoia, alienation, and an outright departure from reality. Stannis' critique of his own class always comes, back to, always comes back to how they have treated him personally, a reflection of how Robert and Renly treated him. It is a self-centered POV at the end of the day. To give Stannis some credit, however, he does actually have a specific critique to make about these lords here, that their advice is predictable and useless. <laughs> and he wants Davos around for some company, someone to roll his eyes at as his new lords mouth their empty courtesies and squabble with one another. We'll get more into this in the Storm of Swords, but a question running under the surface of this scene is whether or not Stannis is going to extend that beyond the individual. He tells Devon that because of Davos's intelligence... Stannis desires fewer lords and more smugglers at his side. Well, that has the potential to change everything, but I say potential because there is little <laughs> indication that Stannis would ever act on this passing fancy. As late as Theon's released chapter from the Winds of Winter, he still filters his plans to take and hold power through the lords as they exist. This makes him no different from the other kings of Westeros, of course. But again, it is uniquely frustrating in Stannis' case because he seems to know better than this. And he knows somewhat better because he relates his own experiences of how he's treated by Robert and knows that this is not a good situation for most people, for everyone, because look what happened to me. But it kind of gets back to the sense from Stannis that this concept of justice and this easing of the social strata of Westeros is either a passing fancy of like, wouldn't that be nice, kind of more intellectual? Or, as we were talking about last week, there's just always going to be something down the road when he seizes the Iron Throne, when he is sitting on the Iron Throne, which then becomes the font of justice to all of Westeros and the font of doing, reducing some of the social inequalities. Thankfully, in this particular instance of raising Davos to knighthood first and then to lordship down the road, that is something that Stannis actually does. So credit to Stannis at that. But Stannis is a bit of an institutionalist. He's grown up in this rigidly stratified world, and he's benefited from it. Yeah, he's got a sad backstory. His parents died, He had a, but he also had a maester to serve as a foster father, a castle to live in, food to eat. I don't think that can be said for someone like Weasel from Arya's story when her parents are dead and she's kind of left out in the wilds all by herself. That's a very sad story, too. So Stannis has a relative degree of privilege and also a relative degree of sadness and sad backstory. 
In a way, Stannis' relative privilege reminds me a bit of Jon Snow's we were talking about when he was a bully and Donald Noy setting him straight. Again, the Stannis-John connections become much stronger as we get into Storm and A Dance of Dragons. It's in these younger sons, the ones in the shadows, the ones that are staying in the shadows, that can see the perspective of others much better than those who are gifted good lives. And that makes it for really strong storytelling. But let's not let... R, and I shouldn't say R anymore, my Stannis love, get the better of me, right? You. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blind us, and blind us specifically. Stannis has got his peasant friend, as I mean, you've been saying really, really well. I think it's a hilarious line and actually very, very true. John has an entire organization of pores that he's operating alongside of and will lead in just a bit. And when John is in a leadership position, he makes positive, substantive improvements to the lives of the people, refusing to distinguish between, quote, Northmen and, quote, Wildling. Stannis eventually, as I was saying, names Davos as Lord. Eventually. It's a positive change. Somewhat. Not much. Not much of one, though. No, and it's kind of underlined by the fact that Davos continues to tease him that he will name him a Lord for his great service, but then he kind of backhands it by several times showing just how hollow the title Lord means to him. He does not value his lords. He calls them buffoons. He doesn't respect or need. He's really lowballing Davos here on his grand promise i'll make you a lord but by the way i think lords suck oh <laughs> thanks stannis and then when it comes back to salador san the one ally and the one person davos relates to in this administration davos only mentions his name and stannis flies off the handle and yells yells at stan at davos that all san wants is gold uh yeah sure stannis it is only salador san that is following him <laughs> to loot king's landing for its riches that is not something only a pirate do would do that's only something a smuggler would do not the high lords this is the classism showing from stannis that while davos may be elevated from smuggler tonight to lord one day in his eyes he will never forget that they are different social classes Davos will always be beneath him, no matter what he proclaims. And that's an inherent problem in Stannis's viewpoint. Even as he makes these changes underneath, he is not, his brain is not making the changes that his mouth is saying. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. He's pushing up against the limits of his worldview. And this is something I was talking about last week with someone like Godric Burrell in A Dance with Dragons. Like, he's a shipwrecker. He's a pirate. But oh, he has the Lord in front of his name, so somehow categorically he's different, and Stannis is falling for that same kind of argument there. Because as you say, of course, so many of the Lords in Stannis' trail are definitely thinking about what they're taking from King's Landing. When Alistair Florin talks about what he loses at the Blackwater, it's all his treasures. Like, these are pirates. They're just well-established, well-heeled, well-educated ones. That's the only difference. They're landholders. That's the only difference between them and the pirates. They're pirates a few generations after. They're exactly, which is, yeah, what how Seaworth might be a few generations down the line. If Davos has a really snooty great-grandson, maybe he's going to have this same attitude too, so something else has to change. Davos is trying to push Stannis in a different direction, more explicitly in A Storm of Swords, but it starts here. Why have these councils at all if they're so useless, he asks. Or to put it a little differently, why have these lords at all if they're so useless? Stannis responds that these mules love the sound of their own braying, which is hilarious and true. And he says that he needs them to pull his cart, which is less hilarious, and as I was saying last week, it's debatably true. Davos will use precisely this same imagery, but to inverted effect in A Storm of Swords. You have put the cart before the horse, Your Grace. You have assumed justice is something that comes after you take the throne, as Jeff was alluding to earlier, but it actually must come first. Here and now, Stannis lays out for Davos how this council is going to go. 
The old mules will caution patience, starve out Sir Courtenay, taking a year or more to do so if need be. The young mules will want to attack with every war machine available, except for those who like to kick. They will want single combat for their own glory and legacy. Stannis then asks for Davos' take. And I love the, the gravity of these moments, the seriousness of purpose in these Stannis-Davos scenes, George really trying to work through political philosophy. Davos considers, for a moment, always shaping his truth into a form Stannis might be able to accept, and then says, we should strike for the Iron Throne right now. <laughs> All the options Stannis laid on the table have fatal flaws. An attack is too costly, single combat too chancy, and a siege would take far too much time. Storm's End is a secondary concern at best in Davos's mind. Courtney is no threat to Stannis, and once they take the city, they can deal with Storm's End later on, basically whenever they want. The Lannisters are the ones with the power to harm Stannis and the will to do it. The true threat everyone has been trying, and failing, to get Stannis to focus on. Moreover, the Lannisters have left themselves vulnerable at this particular moment. Tywin was holed up at Harrenhal in part so he could keep an eye on the Baratheons, close enough to King's Landing, as Tyrion was saying earlier in the book, to relieve the city if need be. But Davos, his ear to the ground as always, has heard that Tywin has by necessity given up on that strategy to protect the Westerlands from Rob. Therefore, the capital city is as vulnerable as it's ever going to get, with only the gold cloaks and Tyrion's assorted clansmen and swords <laughs> in between Stannis and the Iron Throne. Stannis admires Davos' argument in every respect but one. In his mind, there is a need to take Storm's End, because if he doesn't, his reputation will suffer, and his reputation is all he has. Men don't love him like they did Robert and Renly, so he has to make them fear him, and defeat is death to fear. As always, I really do relate to Stannis here in terms of his isolation from his brothers, that, that personal hole inside animating all of this, the certainty that they didn't love me, ergo nobody can't because they were my family. But really, strictly speaking, his argument is bullshit on every possible level. First of all, fear is greater than love is the sort of thing villains say. Cersei says this exact same shit at the Blackwater, to Sansa, like it's an important lesson that she's teaching her. This is the very queen Stannis is trying to defeat, so why, you know, makes me kind of feel like both sides on the Blackwater are kind of the same. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, Stannis's objections to the plans Davos is putting forward are, I would say, specious at best. I think that's the right way to say that word. Awesome. Why do you need Stannis, why do you need Storm's End now? It's pride. Well, also Melisandre, but we'll get to that later. But it's pride is why he needs the castle to fall. Courtney Penrose has embarrassed Stannis, has embarrassed Stannis by outing his dirty secret to his men and exposing that Edric Storm is actually what he wants Storm's End for. He's been whinging about getting the wrong castle for years, and he thinks he'll look weak now if he can't knock over puny Courtney Penrose. Ugh. Boy, Stannis. Maybe you should have thought of that before you showed up to a parlay with no backup plan in case the guy who was putting up a fight puts up a fight and says, <laughs> I want to fight you to the death rather than accept your bribe. Like, why did that not occur to him? Well, we know it's because Melisandre. Melisandre already knows that he will die in the flames. But it, it's he's making Penrose important. He's making storms. He's marking it as important when nobody else is. Also, he draws a comparison with himself and Robert here, saying that he can't afford to seem weak when he doesn't have the charisma Robert has. What he fails to grasp is that while he thinks he looks silly by not fighting Courtney and taking Storm's End now, 
he looks equally silly to spend his massive new army trying to take a castle nobody thinks he needs just to massage his pride. It's kind of like Carl uh, from Back to the Future. You call Marty McFly a chicken, you challenge Stannis on the point of pride, and he will never let it go. He has to, he cannot let it go ever. Of course, Back to the Future, there's a there's completion of the arc and Marty gets over it. Doc Brown is obviously Davos. This is all canon. But his obsession with besting his brother has made him think that he must be perfect, better, the best Baratheon. His campaign must be beautiful. It must be flawless. The one time, like we were talking about earlier, that Stannis is trying to make a case for appearing impressive, he swings at a pitch in the dirt. Nobody cares about Storm's End. Win this Iron Throne, you can take it at your leisure. But Stannis has swung at a sinker diving out of the zone. (laughs) This is all his own fault. The reason he will look weak for not being able to pass up Courtney is himself. It's a, it's a, like I was talking about with Sideshow Bob, it's another rake to the face. You didn't have to do this. You could have bypassed Stannis it. has a taste for own goals for sure. And it's because mm-hmm. of his twinned sins, pride, as you were saying, and envy. And both of those two things are always feeding on the other. And look, even if you want to make a, you know, a more kind of cold case that, hey, you know, fear is the source of power. Stannis isn't going to be loved. This makes sense. It doesn't work. Stannis assassinates Courtenay and takes Storm's End, but the fear this generates does not bind his men to him. Quite the opposite. A bunch of them go on over to Renly's ghost at the Battle of the Blackwater. Those are the wages of trying to rule through fear. And uh, Jeff read that passage earlier from uh, Dance with Dragons about why his common men stay loyal, and they're listing off Stannis' resume. You know what victory doesn't make that list? Storm's End. (laughs) Why aren't his men talking about this? Why aren't his men talking about how he took Storm's End? Because he took it like this. So they're not impressed. It's not part of his reputation. It's not part of why he's still in charge. Also, of course, Stannis slowing himself down at Storm's End guarantees his ultimate defeat at the Blackwater. Remember, he only loses that battle by hours. If he struck north at once, as Davos advises, Garland showing up in Renly's armor wouldn't matter one bit. Stannis would have taken the city and executed Joffrey. Finally, on a more practical level, I don't really see what the danger is to Stannis here. This is not like Rob attacking the Westerlands or the Ironborn attacking the North. Tywin has to respond to Rob attacking the Westerlands because the whole of his territory is at risk. If he doesn't, his lords and army might desert him. Rob has to respond to the Ironborn attacking the North because the whole of his territory is at risk. If he doesn't, his lords and army might desert him. Now in both cases... The ability of the invading force is inflated by rumor and distance. Rob can't actually take Casterly Rock. The Ironborn certainly cannot hold the entirety of the North. But there is a real political incentive to respond, in large part just to find out what's happening. None of that applies here. Stannis has no inaccurate information. He's not at a distance. He's on the scene. Courtney does not have the power, nor probably even the will, to go out and conquer the rest of the Stormlands behind Stannis' back. Moreover... He didn't conquer Storm's End in the first place. He was given it to hold by Renly, who was the lord of Storm's End. Stannis didn't lose this castle. He never had it to begin with. He wasn't defeated here. It's just not his. So I find the idea that Stannis' army would, like, desert him on the road to King's Landing if he left Storm's End untaken to be highly suspect. I don't think Stannis is responding to actual political and military realities. I think he's responding to imaginary ones, the ones he has cooked up in his head, rooted in the certainty he can never be loved because his brothers never loved him. As he himself points out, the castle must fall quickly, because the Lannisters have secured an alliance with Dorne that, unlike Courtenay, could actually threaten the Stormlands, and because Stannis, as he realizes, has failed to take control of Renly's huge infantry army. 
Yeah, so here's the part where I get to play the contrarian to both you gentlemen here and talk about why Storm's End was somewhat important for, for Stannis to take. But I will first agree with you that Stannis' reasons for wanting to take the castle are personal, but I do have to disagree on whether it was militarily valid. Man, so much disagreement on this podcast. We're really emphasizing the no part of the not a cast podcast. Stannis' army is about 20,000 strong, as he tells Cordy Penrose at the start of this chapter, and that seems like a pretty high number. The issue is that even with the numbers that he has added into his army when he took Renly's army into his own, seizing King's Landing is not a sure thing. As Tyrion will say, quoting Tywin at the Blackwater, one man on the walls is worth 10 beneath. At 20,000 soldiers, Stannis is barely pushing a three to one force advantage to make the attack on King's Landing, meaning that he's well under what he needs to be in order to make a successful attack on the city. So the odds of him launching a successful attack and taking King's Landing are diminished at the very least. All that's to say is that he needs a line of retreat if things go south at Blackwater, namely the Castle of Storm's End. As Stannis tells Davos in A Dance with Dragons, even Lord too fat to sit a horse, White Harbor would give me a ready support. White Harbor would give me a ready source of supply and a secure base to which I could retreat at need. In the context, he's talking about what why he needs the Manderly support if things go bad in taking Winterfell. It's that same military need that Stannis has for Storm's End. If things don't go well at King's Landing, he's going to need a spot to fall back to, regroup, and try again. Secondarily, as you were mentioning. Dorne Martell's hosts are occupying the Prince's Pass in the Boneway. Oh yeah, I bet they are occupying those that the Boneway man. Unlike Tyrion, Stannis doesn't have the intelligence network of Vars, which assesses Dorne Martell to be assuming blocking positions and is not planning on moving into the Stormlands. Historically speaking, that's not been the case. The Dornish haven't been content just to hole up in Dorne when they had the Dornish marshes essentially open and waiting for an invasion. And Stannis' great fear is getting caught in a hammer and anvil type scenario a la the Redgrass Field, where the walls of King's Landing are the anvil and the Dornish are the hammer. It's a good thing that Stannis avoided that one at the Blackwater, right guys? Oof. Storm's End works as both an interdiction point to delay and block any Dornish armies coming up the King's Road and a beacon tower to alert Stannis' army if the Dornish are on their way. So it's fear, caution, and those old familiar emotions regarding Robert and Brenly that's animating Stannis' decision-making here. Jon Snow really has Stannis dead to rights when he's describing his command philosophy after he receives the letter from Stannis in Jon's seventh chapter in Dance of Dragons. Stannis was a deliberate commander, and his host was a half-digested stew of clansmen, southern knights, kingsmen, and queensmen, salted with a few northern lords. He should move on Winterfell swiftly, or not at all, Jon thought. It was not his place to advise the king, but... Stannis' caution in the field is a double-edged sword. It really always is with Stannis. Everything about him is a double-edged sword. On one hand, it allows him to plan and pull off some of his most daring and tactically complex battle plans and victories, luring the Iron Fleet into the Battle of Fair Island and using a partial cavalry envelopment at the Wall against Mance Raider. On the other hand, it's a deliberate character contrast to Robert, and it slows everything down when Stannis probably should be prioritizing Davos's more speedy advice in order to make to King's Landing as quickly as is humanly possible. I think you make great points, and that does ground Stannis in much more kind of logistics than purely the character conflicts, because he also is thinking this through on a military level. And yeah, I hadn't even considered, you're absolutely right, Storm's End makes perfect sense as a base to fall back on if things go poorly at King's Landing. And of course, this is just, yes, Stannis' general kind of much more deliberate approach and, and created in direct contrast to Robert. But as Davos points out, the fact that, you know, things are getting dangerous around them and that, you know, that the Dornish are occupying the passes and that he doesn't have control of Renly's infantry, all of this is more reason to leave right fucking now. <laughs> Salador San says the city is ripe 
and that is when Stannis loses his temper. All Sala wants is gold. He's no better than the turncloak lords who Stannis needs but despises, scorning their useless advice. Stannis' pride again comes out so strongly here, saying he will take the black before he listens to a Lysine pirate. Ironically, in A Storm of Swords, Stannis will sail north to the Wall to rescue the Night's Watch, and he will do so because Davos, a former smuggler, told him to do so. Stannis is ironically uh, prophesying for himself without knowing it here. <laughs> but here in A Clash of Kings, he tells Davos that Davos, like everyone else, is here to serve. Not, quote, vex me with arguments. How dare you give me the honest advice I asked you to give? How dare you point out when I am completely full of shit? Just as Stannis doesn't want to deal with his culpability in Renly's death, he doesn't want to acknowledge it when, his, when Davos, his conscience, is making points. So instead, he falls back on precisely the hierarchy that he was hinting earlier he might want to invert. And this is where we see the limitations of that. Stannis will raise up Davos to irk the other lords, but when Davos instead irks Stannis, Stannis will slap him down and remind him of his place. And Davos, of course, thinks of King Stannis as his god in A Clash of Kings. His perspective on that will change somewhat in A Storm of Swords, but for now, he just lowers his head and listens. Uh, oh, Stannis. Uh, what I noticed most of all reading this back in this conversation is Davos's total confusion at what really is happening between them, why he is being called into this tent. Stannis asks for him for, asks him for what he thinks. Davos suggests they should sail right now and takes King Landing by sea. At the mention of Sando, Stannis blows up, and he previously demonstrated with his rattling off of the plans of his lords that he already knows what Davos will say and disagrees and doesn't want to hear <laughs> it from his stupid smuggler. There's a well-known idea that the person you're going to ask for advice about something tells you a lot about what you already want to do. He's asking Davos to talk him out of what he sees as his duty. Say your dumb idea. Wait, well, let me do the voice. Say your dumb idea I already think is dumb. <laughs> Talk to me about Renly. Convince me not to kill Courtney. Remind me I can't do this. Remind me that I shouldn't Please continue. continue <laughs> remind me that I shouldn't continue feeding my soul and my kin to Melisandre's hungry red god. He grows angry with Davos because Davos has not caught on to what he really wants to talk about. It's not about the, the It's not about the logistics of how to pry Courtney Penrose and Edric Storm out of the castle nor how dumb and craving his lords are. It's the cost of what he is doing, the doubt Stannis is feeling over Melisandre, and the lingering idea that manifests later that Davos plays on, that increasing it looks like Mel is the powerful one in the army. She's the one that can see the future. She makes Lightbringer. She kills Renly. Is Stannis even in control anymore, or is she? Which queen are the queen's men serving? Whose sigil is Stannis actually wearing? Is it a flaming stag, or is it a heart devouring the stag itself? And this is kind of as close as we get Stannis actually talking about his feelings, expressing the storm of emotions and conflicting ideas in his head. He can't come out and say to, D to Davos, am I doing the right thing? But he can have Davos ask the questions for him. This is unbelievably Stannis having therapy or trying. But he's locked in at this point. He's plot committed. He's killed his brother. He's a kinslayer. He's declared himself king. And more importantly, Mel has demonstrated her power by, by predicting that by going to Storm's End, Stannis would acquire almost all of Renly's troops, and then Renly died. She was correct. Davos is useful. He's a great smuggler. But he is not literally magic. How can he ignore her advice now, even as Davos pokes holes in the logic of how she predicted it? She is Stannis' version of Aegon's dragons, 
And you'd have to be a moron to not use dragons, right? That's yeah. the great temptation. And, of course, temptation is so key to that Stannis Melisandre dynamic and Davos is being a, given a, a glimpse into it. And so the conversation shifts from the political dilemma in which Team Stannis has embroiled itself to the magical solution. George has set up the Gordian knot, and now Stannis has to bring out Alexander's sword to cut through it. For Stannis, that sword is both Davos and Melisandre, forged together into one. Davos says that he belongs to Stannis, that he will be that weapon. Stannis has found one use for his turncloak lords. Despite their useless, predictable plans, they have intelligence that will help him take the castle. The Fossilways have informed him that Courtney Penrose's second-in-command, young Lord Meadows, is their cousin, and they know him to be a green boy. If he were to suddenly find himself in command of the Storm's End garrison that Renly left behind, he would promptly surrender the castle to Stannis. The Fossilways, of course, probably told Stannis this with the assumption that he would then offer one of them the chance to make this happen via glorious single combat. But Stannis has another plan in mind, another champion in mind. Davos tries once more to get Stannis to see himself in the Defenders of Storm's End to foster empathy in his king. I remember another stripling who was given command of Storm's End. He could not have been much more than 20. See, your grace? Courtney is stubborn, just like you. Lord Meadows is a young man suddenly given this castle to hold, just like you. <laughs> Can you not realize that you are setting your own heart on fire by making such ruthless use of these men? But Stannis rejects this empathy. Deep down, as Matt was saying, he is not okay with what he's doing. <laughs> so he has to keep these men at arm's length emotionally to carry through with it. Lord Meadows is not Stonehead stubborn <laughs> like me. A Stonehead stubborn is not exactly a compliment. That almost sounds like a self-critique on Stannis' part. But as I've been saying, these self-criticisms, even when they're genuine, just don't quite stick. And it's also it's this kind of throwaway line here. It's not throwaway. It seems throwaway when you just glance at it. But it's not an ideological statement on Stannis' part. There's nothing about what Stannis says about Storm's End and his defense of it during Robert's Rebellion of, I did it for Robert. Ares was a monster. The king just can't murder one of his lords paramount. It's very rude. He keeps faith, as Davos said about Courtney Penrose in our last part. We're getting the precursor to the great discussion Stannis and Davos have over why Stannis forswore his oath to Ares in favor of Robert during Robert's Rebellion. Stannis can't articulate a reason for the hard choosing he makes between the crown and his brother, though of course the season two extra material would have it be that Stannis valued the older laws of blood over those of royalty. But there's also but there's also that Stannis protected his toddler brother Renly from Aerys's bannerman besieging Storm's End. So he was stone-headed, stubborn in Robert's Rebellion. Stannis kept faith to a person, to Robert, and he protected a family member in his brother Renly. Courtney isn't seemingly invested in Renly's best-suited-should-rule philosophy as far as we can tell. He keeps faith to a dead usurper because of honor's sake and because he's protecting a family member of Stannis's, namely Eric Storm. Song of Ice and Fire history, guys. It's like poetry. It rhymes. So dense. Uh, this is something we were talking about in the pre-show that I really do love about this chapter, as much as it sounds ridiculous that I, Joe Magician, and saying I love a Stannis chapter, but <laughs> so many of the things being said can be reinterpreted and George is offering critiques on each character going back and forth. And one of these is one thing I picked up on, and that is how Davos' support of Courtney Penrose comes down to the idea you just said that he keeps faith, <laughs> that he believes in a cause and he sticks with it. However, you can almost see this as Davos offering a critique of Stannis in this moment. Since Davos has known him, he has drastically changed his beliefs, religious and otherwise, his ambitions, who's he, who is even elevating to his council. 
allowing Crescent to die, his surrogate father for Melisandre, must stick out in Davos's mind as questioning who really is this fiery-hearted stag that sits before him, saying that he should assassinate Kenrose to get his hands on his nephew. Kinslaying? A foreign religion? Dark magic and burning? What faith is Stannis holding anymore, at least from Davos's perspective? For him, Stannis is going down a path that Davos is very uncomfortable following, and maybe were the dangling lordship and the protection from his past life that Stannis provides not a part of our equation, at this point we might see our smuggler seriously consider jumping for Salador San. Maybe. We'll see. But <laughs> he is definitely questioning Stannis during this. There's quite a lot of misdirection and points applying to applying beyond the actual characters being talked about. The discussion of Penrose is Davos expressing his uncertainty about where their campaign is going. What is forcing them to accept that they never would have dared before morally? Stannis hated Robert, but he was never going to raise a banner against him. He detested that Renly had the castle that he coveted, but he wasn't sending assassins in the night to kill his younger brother. The War of the Five Kings and the stakes, particularly the stakes that Melisandre has heaped on Stannis and what she's convinced him of, are turning Stannis into somebody that Davos is having trouble recognizing. And that Stannis he knows, the one he's still holding faith with, is only briefly resurfacing from the Zealotry in these brief moments of the cloud of doubt passing his face before he descends again into the Nightfires and orders Davos to go ahead with the assassination that he can't believe he's being asked to do. Really well said. It's that struggle that Davos and Stannis can't quite even acknowledge they're filtering it through these other characters and these other characters' fates as they test each other to see if they've changed or not. Davos finally arrives at the point. Regardless of the personal qualities of Lord Meadows, Sir Courtney does not seem likely to die on his own, and you have already rejected single combat, your grace. So, what is it we're talking about here? Well, no one saw Renly's death coming either, did they? We are in the age of wonder and terror now, Davos, and your expectations must change. The night is dark and full of terrors. This is the first and only time we hear Stannis say the guiding mantra of the faith of R'hllor. Afterwards, we see the Queen's men chanting it en masse in both Dragonstone and the North, but Stannis is always keeping his jaw clenched shut. Here, though, he says it out loud. It is a skin-crawling indication of how Melisandre has begun convincing him of the reality of her god and it makes the hairs on the back of Davos's neck stand up. As he said last time, something is wrong here. Well, what specifically is wrong here? <laughs> the night is dark and full of terrors refers on the surface to the others. They come in the long night. They and their zombie army are the terrors haunting the darkness. Melisandre has come to defeat them. But the others aren't here at Storm's End, and they're almost <laughs> certainly never going to get this far. They are not the terrors who have come hunting in the dark. Melisandre is. Stannis is. The shadowy assassins they produce together, those are the terrors filling up the Dark Knight, as Catelyn and Brienne could tell you. So Stannis and Melisandre have become their own enemy. Stannis himself is admitting it. He's saying that, like Renly, Courtney will die out of nowhere because the night is dark and full of terrors. Again, on the surface, he's just talking about how there are no guarantees in life except death, but underneath, he is not talking about how winter comes for the summer nights in a broad circle of life sense. He is talking about a specific decision he has made. At an instinctive level, those hairs on the back of his neck, Davos understands what that decision is. But out loud, he says, my lord, I do not understand you. A line that definitely has two meanings. I do not understand you anymore. He is desperate to be wrong. 
he wants Stannis to offer another explanation. Stannis says that he does not require Davos's understanding, only his service. And this, to me, is a damning statement on Stannis' part, undercutting his cause. He has stopped talking to Davos like a person, as he was earlier, an individual in whose insights and worldview Stannis seemed to be taking a genuine interest. Nope. Davos is back to being a cog in the machine, a part of the social structure upon which Stannis sits, defined by his utility to the protagonist of reality. Earlier, Stannis was cutting past the strict hierarchy of power to lay himself out before a smuggler from the slums, hearing his advice, accepting his reproach. But now that Davos's advice and reproach have taken forms inconvenient for Stannis, touching on the raw bundle of nerves Courtney Penrose so effectively exposed, well now Stannis wants Davos to shut up and bend the knee. I don't require your understanding. I don't require your consent. I don't require you to approve of what you're doing. I don't even require you to know what you're doing. I will thoroughly alienate you from your labor, make you an accessory to murder without being even honest with you about what I'm asking of you. Remember the oath that Catelyn and Brienne swore to each other? Catelyn swore that in exchange for Brienne's fearless devoted service, she would never ask anything of Brienne that would bring her dishonor. And Stannis has failed to uphold his end of the bargain. He is asking of Davos service that would bring Davos dishonor. And this is because Stannis has abandoned the concept of reciprocal duty, of the idea that he owes the people of Westeros every bit as much as they <laughs> owe them. He is only thinking of duty running in his direction. There's got a little bit of a paralleling that's going on here with our discussion from last week about whether Stannis ordered Renly's death explicitly or not. Given how we both came down to any order, if it was given, perchance being unspoken, we still have to consider how Melisandre kept telling Stannis that Renly will die in the flames. Did Melisandre not require Stannis' understanding, just his service, just his duty? Now, I tend to favor Stannis as a somewhat unwitting co-conspirator to Renly's tragic, who did it, mysterious death. Who did it? And in this scenario, Davos is similar to Stannis. He's being asked to participate in a venture which he knows will result in Courtney or Renly's death without being told the particulars of how it's actually going to come about, right? Maybe, possibly. Go, go listen to our episode from last week in our debate about it. It was good. <laughs> And uh, Davos himself is going to force Stannis to change his mindset, temporarily at least, come a storm of swords when he forces Stannis to think about reciprocal duty. But this is a Clash of Kings, in which Davos still thinks of Stannis as not only his king, but his god. You don't criticize a god, and so he cannot yet articulate this argument. And Stannis is acting like Davos' god, rather than his king. I have access to divine vision, and that divine vision says Courtenay is dead meat, full stop. Sir Courtenay will be dead within the day. Melisandre has seen it in the flames of the future, his death and the manner of it. He will not die in nightly combat, needless to say. And that's all he says. Oh, so much for iron truths <laughs> and saying what he means. Stannis can't even acknowledge the order he's giving Davos. He's speaking in euphemisms. What will actually happen to Courtney Penrose is that a shadow with Stannis' face will fling him to his death. Melisandre has apparently seen this in the flames, and the flames do not lie. Stannis has come to believe in this source of sorcerous power because it came true with Renly. On Dragonstone, as with Davos at Storm's End, there were those encouraging Stannis to strike for the Iron Throne itself, but Melisandre told him that if he came to Storm's End, he would get a big army first. And she was right. As Davos immediately points out, however, Stannis is taking a curiously passive role in all this, as he was regarding the murder of Renly itself. Melisandre did not simply describe something that was inevitably going to happen thanks to fate. 
her describing it actively helped bring it about. If Mel had never shared her vision with Selyse and Stannis, it could not have come true, because Selyse and Stannis needed to take specific informed actions in order for it to come true. Prophecy and sorcery are not simply external phenomena, they are deeply inextricably intertwined with the human soul, with the battleground that George loves between good and evil slicing through every human heart. Uh, one side note I wanted to say here, I love this inclusion of this little line that George is telling us exactly how Melisandre found her way into Stannis's court. Selyse. She demonstrated her power to Selyse, probably something small, and it's her words that carried to Stannis's ear, and she used the relationship the two of them have in order to worm her way into this court. Fascinating uh, stuff by George there telling us exactly the manipulations that he put, that Melisandre put the uh, Baratheon family to, to get them to this point. But it's also a very interesting way that George is using this clash of magic and real life between the two of them. Melisandre's magic is real. Even Stannis, who doubts everything and thinks everybody's dumb, cannot look at what she's saying and be like, well, this is just, this is nonsense. I can't use this. He has to use it. It's, but every time he does, it seems like it's plucking away a little part of himself because of the demands that Melisandre is asking back of him. It's not just, it's not free for Stannis. His, his crown and his throne will come at a very deep cost that Melisandre basically keeps upping, keeps saying like, I'll help you this time. Okay, but now we're going to sew those patches on. Okay, I'll help you again. Now we're changing your sigil. It's a, it's a slow taking over of his kingship by somebody that is an expert manipulator and somebody that is literally magic that has gone from nothing in Westeros and is taking it to the point where if this goes well, she may start maybe a theocracy in the name of Stannis. You compare that with other characters like Thoros Amir had the same plan, absolutely failed at charming Robert because it seems that he, <laughs> he did not have the magic that Melisandre does. And I love thinking about this in terms of how much of this quest, this quest right here, this specific chapter, is coming down to the unspoken third character in the conversation. It's Melisandre. She's dictated that they need Edric. She's dictated they must go to Storm's End. Everything that's happening is at her doing, although Stannis is agreeing. There's no deniability anymore. He has to go along with it because she sees the future. How can you disagree with a fortune teller? And I love that element that is coming through as we talk about prophecy and magic and specifically the value of Edric Storm, which I think if you asked everybody in Stannis' camp, they, if you said, why are we here? I think very few of them would go, well, obviously Edric Storm, that's, that's what this is for. Most of them would say, oh, well, it's probably a pride thing. Like he's been complaining about Storm's End for years. Okay, not exactly. It's actually this high magic rising plotline in George's story that the political matters are being overwhelmed by the magical ones slowly one step at a time just as melisandre worms her way into a position of extreme power in westeros and the seductive idea of fate is that it takes away free will and free will can be a torment and so it's, it's very easy to say no it's not my choice is being made so my responsibility is gone my pain is gone my suffering is gone but these powers that we're talking about prophecy and sorcery they are caught up in the decisions we make just as the meaning of Catalan's gods have changed as she has changed, so Melisandre's visions in the flames do not carry power on their own. They are shadows on walls. They are given meaning by their audience, and they only have weight if Stannis agrees they have weight. Without Stannis' interference, Renly would have just kept on gradually marching to King's Landing. 
Stannis does not want to hear that. Was, would have. Those are just words, and words are wind. What matters is what happened. He's not exactly wrong about that, but Stannis is ignoring his own role in bringing about what happened. You can tell how hard you can tell how hard he's working to compartmentalize all of this because he again unprompted brings up Renly's peaches. That's how much it hurts. That's how much it's still hurting. In order to dodge his own culpability, in order to make it seem like he made the best possible choice here, Stannis brings up another vision of Melisandre's. And in this vision, Renly smashed Stannis's host against the walls of King's Landing. Or oh, it would appear that Melisandre used this vision to caution Stannis against mercy. If you sail to King's Landing as your bannermen urge, your grace, Renly will meet you there regardless, and it will be your doom, not his. It's better this way. But Davos again protests that, no, it just doesn't work this way. Nothing works this way. Leadership, morality, the flow of time itself, none of what Stannis is talking about makes any sense to him. Stannis and Renly would still have choices to make. They could have joined their strength to bring down the Lannisters. That, Davos implies, without spelling it out because he's afraid to piss off Stannis further, would have been the best outcome. Once again, we see that the core of the Stannis-Davos dynamic is that while they share a bond forged in backstory, their worldviews are very different. Stannis comes back to the Iron Constants. Here is what was. Here is what is. Here is what will be. I require not your understanding nor vexing arguments. Davos has all vexing arguments. He comes back to the exceptions, the subtleties, the possibilities. Here is what could have been. Here are complications outside your reductive statements. Davos points out that if Melisandre saw two different irreconcilable futures in her flames, then individual choice, free will, chance, and complication are preserved. Stannis chose which outcome he wanted to bring about and must bear responsibility for that outcome, as he must do again regarding Courtney Penrose's fate. Now, Davos says both can't come true because he doesn't realize that what Melisandre actually saw was Garland in Renly's armor <laughs> smashing <laughs> Stannis at the Blackwater. So that's kind of a level of irony on reread. But within the scene, Stannis shoots back with this religious sophistry that exemplifies how George both establishes an interesting philosophical foundation to Melisandre's faith, while also exposing how that foundation is riddled with bullshit and nonsense. Some lights cast more than one shadow. Stand before the night fire and you'll see for yourself. The flames shift and dance, never still. The shadows grow tall and short, and every man casts a dozen. Some are fainter than others, that's all. Well, men cast their shadows across the future as well, one shadow or many. Melisandre sees them all. As Melisandre herself admits, telling the future is more art than science. She can get things wrong. She can misread Rolor's message, assuming that things that may be must be. But like Stannis, this self-awareness somehow does not temper her certainty. Instead, she just interprets it as the many-faceted, many-faced nature of God. Flames are never still, and so cast many shadows. People work the same way. But isn't this just a fancy way of admitting that Davos is right? If people cast many shadows among the future, then we have the ability to choose among them. What separates one potential future from another? Our choices. If we, like flames, are never still, if we are defined not by constancy but by change, if the heart of life and light is transformation, transformation rather than apotheosis, doesn't that imply that Stannis and Melisandre are wrong about, well, everything? As is so often the case in the real world, the half-hidden nature of the divine, the way in which God gives us questions but no answers, only encourages Stannis and Melisandre's need to make up their own answers, rather than accept the mystery. 
In doing so, they wash their own hands of blood, insisting they are simply carrying out the inevitable, unchanging divine word of the Lord of Light itself. Stannis, as usual, recognizes at some level that his arguments fall apart upon the slightest scrutiny. He is a smart enough person to know that he is actively shaping his own destiny, the uncertainty principle guaranteeing that just by seeing the future, he and Melisandre are inevitably changing it. One point I really love that you brought up is Melisandre shaping the narratives. And we know this comes up explicitly again in A Dance of Dragons, Melisandre 1, when we see truly how alike Davos and Mel are in this one way. They know they cannot tell their patrons the whole truth. Just as Mel tells John that, yes, absolutely sure the girl on the horse is Arya, internally she expresses doubt and doesn't really know who or what she saw. It was just a fleeting thing one time. Her visions in the flame aren't just uncertain, they're edited for her audience. And to defend Stannis a little bit, the reason that his arguments fall flat and there's so many holes in them is because clearly he's parroting what Melisandre said to him when he asked the same questions. Clearly, this has happened before, and he has just accepted them because the results are so good. But this is really Melisandre's fault. She is editing, she is massaging the truth, as it were, like any good PR person, to make sure that her answers are not only useful, but Stannis will like them. And that creates an internal conflict that Davos and Stannis are having tons of trouble resolving. The two of them are sitting there, Stannis says the thing, and both of them sort of go, Ugh, I, I, don't, I don't know about that, man. Uh, Stannis knows there's something afoul with Mel's logic and explanations that Davos is expertly poking the holes in, and it resonates. He has asked all of these before, and he will continue to do so, and he's letting Davos be the one that he is sharing this extremely private moment of doubt with. I think the, the other aspect, too, would, as Melisandre relates in A Dance of Dragons, is that she feels very strongly that she has suffered so much in order to gain this ability to see these visions in the flames. And that means that she is the only one who could possibly interpret these visions correctly. As it turns out, this is not the case. As you're alluding to the girl in the gray horse, uh, the dying gray horse is not actually Arya Stark, most likely, or potentially could be down the road, but uh, in, in actuality was was Alice Carr Stark. And then, of course, the uh, the black and bloody tide that submerges those towers by the sea. There's John S. is this Eastwatch, and she's like, Eastwatch? Well, it didn't really look like Eastwatch by uh, when I remember sailing there. Yes, definitely. It is definitely Eastwatch by the sea, my lord. Uh, no need to worry anymore about that. So it's that certainty aspect of, reli of religious certainty that Melisandre brings into the equation, which makes these conversations really dense because I would love, God, I would just love to have Melisandre's point of view of this, this exact chapter, or at least a flashback at some point in the winds of winter where she's like, maybe I didn't see correctly when I was looking into the flames and seeing Renly's host smash Stannis's at the Blackwater. Maybe I didn't see correctly that there are two, that there are two potential visions and two potential futures that are out there in the flames. I think that would make it a really interesting perspective to get that in the winds of winter, but we'll see it or not. I don't know. We'll find out next week. And I think Stannis is responding to all these kind of these these holes and assumptions, these leaps of logic when he shifts from parroting Melisandre's arguments to acknowledging that uh, they are not exactly proving universally convincing in his more secular coalition now. He knows that Davos doesn't like Melisandre's presence, her growing influence within that coalition. And this is pretty much the one thing Davos has in common with a bunch of the Turncloak lords that are swarming around Stannis like flies to a corpse. 
Stannis recounts the arguments that these lords make against Melisandre, and some are arguments I agree with, that the Flaming Heart Banner is a political loser and Stannis should go back to the Crown Stag. Some arguments I don't agree with, that she has no place at his side specifically because she's a woman. One gets the sense that Guillard Morgan had the latter argument in mind because he'd already made it to Renly about Brienne. What an asshole. But what all of these arguments have in common is that Stannis doesn't care about any of them. Let his lords whisper. He cares not for their understanding, only for their service. They can talk themselves to death, but Melisandre? She serves. Davos asks Stannis how Melisandre serves. <laughs> he dreads the answer because I just don't think he wants to hear about the adultery at all, but he's the only one whose relationship with Stannis even allows him to ask it. Stannis once more falls back on euphemisms, on half-truths, in direct defiance of his reputation as someone who wants the whole truth, so help me God. She serves as needed. Which does not remotely answer Davos's question, but on another level, it does. It's an answer that says, how dare you even ask? She serves me, which is all you need to know. Your understanding is not required, only your service. I am your god. Neil. And what about you? Stannis asks Davos, how do you serve? And Davos must admit that for all he doesn't like Melisandre, he has this in common with her. He, too, will do whatever Stannis needs. Stannis tries to shape his command into a form Davos will accept. I need you to do nothing you have not done before. I need you to be a smuggler again. Land a boat beneath the castle, unseen in the dark of night. You can do that, can't you? So wait a minute, Stannis. Didn't you just say that Davos deserved to lose his fingers because he was a smuggler and being a smuggler is the opposite of being a hero. But now, when his smuggling skills are useful to you, suddenly this is just part of Davos's past to be called upon, not something for which you cut part of his hand off. The hypocrisy of this. Once more, we see that Stannis' model of iron justice, whatever you may think of it in the abstract, exists only in the abstract. <laughs> When he tries to act upon it, it immediately becomes ensnared by the corrupt nature of power, what he needs to do as the king. When it is convenient for him to bring Davos back down the ladder, taking away Black Betha, forcing him to sail like a smuggler again, he will do so. Davos wants to protest. Not only is he not a smuggler anymore, and this is really kind of a personal betrayal for Stannis to do this to him, but he has never been an assassin. Stannis is making a worse man of him, not better. And yet the protest does not come. Davos's mouth closes. Because as I said last week, the hypocrisy of Stannis' justice ultimately matters less to Davos than how Stannis has specifically raised up Davos and his family and given them new opportunities. If Davos does not prove himself useful to Stannis, if he does not serve as needed like Melisandre does, he, and more importantly to him, his sons, lose everything. This is how power operates, for Stannis as well as Davos. Once you have it, everything you do is filtered through your incentive to keep it, and your moral compass inevitably goes awry. Davos can only think to himself, as Crescent did, that Melisandre must have done something to Stannis. <laughs> and just like Crescent, he is not quite correct about this. Clearly, as Matt was saying, Melisandre has had a huge impact on how Stannis thinks and what Stannis does, yet she has not altered the very nature of the man to do so. Rather, she is built upon what was already there, taking advantage of his pre-existing personality and worldview to pull him in her direction. It is easier for Davos to think of Stannis as a helpless puppet, a good man turned bad by the external influence of a wicked witch, rather than acknowledge the truth. Stannis is still in charge. 
And this is what Stannis, being in charge, looks like. The man who raised up Davos is also the man who cut off his fingers. And the man who said, my onion knight gives me the truth, is the same man ignoring that truth now. We are vast and contradictory. Like the flames, we are never still. In this way, even as George frames Davos as a more admirable and honorable man than those around him, he still exposes flaws in Davos' mindset. Davos himself is making an exception to his own argument that people are onions with layers and that nothing is as simple as it appears. He wants to think of the Stannis-Melisandre relationship as being as simple as it appears. She changed him. She ensorcelled him. This is all her fault. She is bad and Stannis is good. So in order to cast the moat out of his own eye, Davos must reconcile his simplistic image of his king with the complexity he otherwise believes in. <laughs> in other words, he must stop thinking of King Stannis as his god, because Stannis is merely a man. That character growth, however, as I keep saying, will wait for a storm of swords. Here in A Clash of Kings, Davos is just left grasping for an answer, a better way, something to reconcile these contradictions. He tells himself that he should just remain quiet at this point, but Stannis still wants him to speak up. And so Davos once more puts himself at risk trying to do the right thing. He accepts Stannis's just need to declare victory at Storm's End, but begs that they find another way, a cleaner way, so that Davos, unlike Stannis, can sleep easy. Let Courtney keep Edric Storm. But no, Stannis must have the boy, because the flames say so, and Stannis now has a vested interest in declaring those visions inevitable. And to circle back, like, why does Stannis need Edric Storm right now? I mean, couldn't he have taken King's Landing and then circle back to Storm's End to pick up Edric round the way? Moreover, as will happen between now and Davos's third chapter in A Clash of Kings, Stannis sends Edric Storm back to Dragonstone with Alistair Florent. So the boy wasn't needed for the ticking of the city of King's Landing at all. So what is the need for so why the need for speed in this instance to take Edric into captivity? This is one of the aspects of prophecy and visions in the flames and destiny, and that it tends to just cloud the entire experience and make you feel that there is a urgency to do things right now, right here, right now, and that's going to end up clouding your better sense and better judgment. Stannis didn't need Edric to take King's Landing. Even in a horrific situation where Melisandre says, we must sacrifice this boy to the flames in order to take King's Landing. He doesn't need to do that because Melisandre apparently doesn't need him until later. He has, she has got another purpose for him down the road. And that's frustrating in one sense, but it also leads to this really kind of uh, cut, corner cutting aspect of Stannis. So he's willing to cut ethical corners in order to get his own way because the destiny and the prophecy says that he has to do this. It's frustrating, but it's also good storytelling too. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely great storytelling. And one part I really loved about this exchange is the change in Davos immediately once he realizes that the point of this is not Storm's End, it's not Courtney Penrose, it's not really its honor, it's Melisandre. It's Melisandre who wants Edric and he fears what that means for the boy. And suddenly he's like, you know what, those risky plans, they're not so risky. <laughs> Edric is totally worth taking those risks to for all. He, he just tries as hard as he can to be like, not the boy, not the innocent child, not the one that you know you don't need. And to, it's, it's so tough to think about, uh, like you're talking about in terms of prophecy and how things are misunderstood. Like this is a running theme in prophecy and the way people understand it, not only in these books, but in all the other books George has written about this subject. The Targaryens 
are literally famous for thinking all prophecy is about to come true right now and misunderstanding what it means and who it's even about. As we saw earlier that Melisandre correct did not could not even identify uh, Garland Tyrell versus Loras. How does she know that it's Edric she needs? How does she know it's this blood of the Baratheons that is necessary? Especially when we look at the other forms of prophecy that we see. Look at the ghost of Highheart. Look at Daron the Drunkard. Look at um, the prophecies from the House of the Undying. How could you possibly make that identification unless did you see Edric Storm's face? Does Melisandre know what he looks like? Or did she see a symbolic image that was hard to understand and said, oh, it's Edric, in the same way that she saw a man in Renly's armor and said, well, it's Renly. Duh, hmm. it must be. Who else could it be? But there's many other of Robert's bastards. There's many other Baratheon kids running around out there. It doesn't have to be Edric. And this is the fundamental flaw that I love seeing in Melisandre and that she literally embodies and that she has um, passed on to Stannis. The idea that there is an absolute truth to be divine from what she is seeing, that there is a, a way to use this productively. It, it works for right now. It works for Renly. It got that army. Hey, way to go. Thumbs up on that one. But as we see throughout the rest of the story and throughout the history, the people that try to take what Melisandre is doing almost always end up self-destructing. And I think that's part of the tragedy here of thinking about why does Stannis need Edric Storm? He's, like I said, he's swinging at a pitch in the dirt. This is a self-own he doesn't need to do, but because Melisandre may very well understand which Baratheon kid is going to be burned in the future. Davos glimpses, even though he doesn't know the details, he, he glimpses kind of the descent they're entering now. And as you say, he starts scrambling back to the other options that he dismissed earlier and starts talking about them as fallbacks. Davos points out that Courtney Penrose cannot possibly think to win the single combat, he proposed. He's ready to die, happy to die even, but he wants to die in such a way that doesn't dishonor his life. He knows the castle is going to fall and that Edric will be taken. He just doesn't want to be responsible for it. He just doesn't want to hand him over. And this, this is really what gets under Stannis' skin, finally. This is what triggers empathy, forcing him to recognize Courtney's face in the mirror. Because Stannis, too, wants to figure a way out of this that doesn't cost him his honor. That doesn't end with him just handing the kid over. He, too, wants to still be able to tell himself he's the good guy in all of this. And good guys don't do things like that. But he can't. And he knows it. He cannot go forward with honor. And he cannot bring himself to turn back. He is in a self-created hell, alone in the darkness. This is the last we see of Stannis Baratheon in The Clash of Kings. Unlike in the show, we don't see him at the Battle of Blackwater, nor the immediate aftermath. Indeed, he doesn't show up again on the page until we're halfway through A Storm of Swords. For 60-plus chapters, over a year here on the Nauticast, this is the image we're going to be left with of the one true king. And that image is of doubt. A shadow of a doubt crossing Stannis' face, like his shadow shifting across the walls of Renly's tent. He's wondering, are we the baddies? <laughs> but George describes this doubt as a passing cloud. It doesn't sink in. It doesn't take hold. Stannis only glances in the mirror and then decisively looks away. The same agonizing give and take is at work on A Storm of Swords. Stannis burns the leeches representing Joffrey and Balin Greyjoy without hesitation, but noticeably hesitates with the leech representing Rob before burning it anyway. Stannis is just self-aware enough, just decent enough, 
to recognize the injustice of his actions, but he lacks the empathy and imagination to be any other way. Once more, we see Stannis as the hero and the villain sharing the same skin, constantly wrestling with one another for control, and such is the human condition. Stannis papers over this sudden, dreadful self-awareness with his usual fig leaves, appeals to the inevitability of fate and the treachery of his fellow man. Davos briefly encouraged empathy for Courtenay within Stannis' shriveled Grinch heart, so Stannis stamps that out with a will, insisting Courtney planned some treachery and so cannot be trusted, cannot be honored or respected, cannot be given mercy. And this is not my choice. This is fate. This is God. The flames do not lie. But as Davos thinks, they require the assistance of flawed, struggling mortals to make them real and then live with it. And this makes Davos so sad, because he knows, unlike Stannis, that they will not be able to dodge culpability for this. They will not be able to externalize it all onto God. The blood is on their hands, and their hands will never be clean again. And Stannis is just the best and possible, in the worst possible way, emotion to leave Stannis and Davos in as this is, will be, as you were saying, their final on-page conversation between the two until Davos's fourth chapter in, in A Storm of Swords. So it's going to be a long time before these two men get to interact again, and a lot of things, plot events, are going to be between this point and that point in A Storm of Swords. The question is going to be whether Stannis is going to change for the better or for the worse from this conversation. And I think the answer ends up coming uh, away is not a better or worse dynamic at all, but rather one that's just one of tragedy. Again, the emphasis on Stannis' arc here in Clash, it starts all the way in Clash, moves, progresses into Storm and into A Dance of Dragons and likely into The Winds of Winter 2, is the tragic aspect of Stannis Baratheon. He has sold part of his soul. He has sold his, he has placed his own family sigil into, into the flames and he hopes that he can win his way to the Iron Throne that way. But it's just not to be. Perfectly said, sir. And I think that's going to take us into foreshadowing and groundwork. And to start that off, as Stannis says, he will indeed make Davos a lord in a storm of swords. That does happen. And thankfully, there is more to it than just pissing off the nobleborn. When it does happen, it's one of my favorite scenes in the whole story. And Davos has, has definitely earned his place at Stannis' side for more than just being out of place. It's nice, right, to actually have this small moment of groundwork and foreshadowing then bloom into... Mm. One of the most emotional, best scenes in all of A Storm of Swords. A very dark book with a lot of terrible things going on all over the place. But that does allow for the great payoff to be to come into Storm of Swords with uh, uh, that those those light moments really shine through all this all the more strongly with uh, with the darkness all around it. Exactly right. Another little bit of foreshadowing here that George tosses in is regarding that host of infantry Renly left behind at Bitterbridge that's been discussed at length in the Tyrion King's Landing side of the equation. And now here we hear Stannis mention it just so I think the author is saying, yes, Stannis is aware of this. And he wants to keep it just in the back of the reader's mind because, of course, Loras has indeed taken command of that host. And that's going to be the whole big twist ending to the Battle of the Blackwater when he uh, takes Stannis from behind. But I think it's fascinating is that, too, at the Battle of the Blackwater itself, most of the fighting is done by the cavalry force that the nobles bring forward, the, the one-fifth of the knights who return back to Bitterbridge. And then, uh, of course, as we talked about in one of our previous Tyrion chapters, Randall Tarly then helpfully murders all the Florent infantry that are still sitting at Bitterbridge <laughs> and that uh, the mix, their forced cavalry. Of course, as we find out in A Storm of Swords, the Tyrells bring 60,000 men to King's Landing, so we can be fairly confident that a number of those 
forces are the infantry force that does come up behind the main cavalry line and uh, ends up being the better part of the Lannister Tyrell army for about two months or so before Cersei fucks everything up. There's also some good foreshadowing here that this is a demonstration of Melisandre's power for the reader. She says this will happen. It does happen, but not how she thinks. Previously, we it's kind of we haven't really seen her doing these things yet. This is a legitimate prophecy she makes that absolutely comes true from reading the flames. So it's reinforcing in the high fantasy sort of way that Melisandre is the real deal. And even if she's wrong, you have to pay attention to what she's saying. That's very true. That's ex- exactly right. You have to do have to pay attention to Melisandre. She does possess a power that Stannis can't explain, but he ends up he's starting to trust a bit more and more and more and more. He's choosing the Red Hawk. Final little bit of foreshadowing groundwork here is that in a so spake Barton entry from the year of 2000, 20 years ago, George commented on Stannis' lost knights who went to treat with the Tyrells at Bitterbridge, saying, Crane and Florent are presently captives at Highgarden, by the way. So does that mean that George has some sort of story plan for these two lost knights? Stannis has a bunch of guide lost knights that end up kind of getting lost. Wrong way rangers, as they're called, to dance with dragons. Mm. So are these guys going to pop up again in, in the Winds of Winter? Maybe. Sort of seems like they will. If he remembers them? Yeah. Well, yeah, George does. But Stan definitely has forgotten about these dudes. The one last foreshadowing groundwork is that the very same concepts that come up between Davos and Stannis, when Davos uh, saves Edric Storm and sends him across the sea to, I've never been sure how to pronounce this. I said Ly- Lys. Is it Lys? I don't really know. I'm going to say Lys. When he sends Edric to Lys, he is thinking quite a lot about Courtney Penrose. He is thinking about how he has realized in this chapter that Edric is in danger and the nobility that Courtney had for protecting this innocent young boy from what he sees as a monster and a growing monster kind of in Stannis. The ex- all the concepts that they tussle over, the exact situations, they're all right here. It's just that Stannis, I mean, it's just that Davos has not I, I, I'm not sure what the right word is. He hasn't got the gumption up mm-hmm. to actually bring it to the forefront that you cannot kill this boy. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It's like this is almost a rehearsal in some ways for everything's going to get deeper and darker. And as you say, a little more blunt on Davos's part when he gets the storm. Because by the time he gets the storm, he's lost like half his family and he's prepared to kill Melisandre and he's been through the dungeons and he's just, he's a little a little worn through with the kind of the pretenses. Not all the way, but a little worn through. So yeah, I think you're totally right. This George definitely pays a lot of this off in Storm. Mm-hmm. And so I think that takes us into our discussion section of the episode. You know, next week, we're going to be uh, getting inside Storm's End, technically, with Davos and Melisandre, getting a little bit beneath the walls enough for her to bird the Shadow Baby. But it leads one to the question, how would one actually get inside Storm's End? How would one breach this impregnable castle, this famous fortress of the Storm Lords? And Matt, this is something you've done great work about very recently, so why don't you take us away on this question? Uh, that is correct. I recently put out a video on my YouTube channel. It was amazing. I know. It was wonderful. Uh, it was titled... Uh, how young Griff will take Storm's End. Let me drop the link in the chat there for you guys. Um, and what Gurm has given us here as a mystery in Davos's chapters, and it's one that's set up by the lore POVs and information. Storm's End cannot fall. It has never fallen. Among Bran the Builder's creations, even Old Town has been sacked. Winterfell has been taken by the Boltons. The Wall breached or avoided, but not Storm's End which creates this kind of narrative tension because every time in fiction something is said to be impossible, you can trust it will almost certainly happen. (laughs) 
This is Chekhov's castle walls, to say it another way. George solves that problem here with Courtney Penrose by having Stannis not attack the walls, but instead the hearts and minds of the men inside, making them open the gates for him by assassinating Courtney. Oris Baratheon, likewise, never took Storm's End by force. Instead, he and Aegon goaded Argilac Durandon to open the gates to come out and have a super cool tough guy fight. Then Argilac promptly lost, and his family was destroyed, and Oris took his sigil, and it was awful. Way to go, Argilac. Don't do that. But like all things in, George, in George's world, all that has happened before will happen again. And it's happening again in The Winds of Winter. As I said in my video, John Connington has found himself in the shoes of two Baratheons, Oris and Stannis. The Golden Company has a desperate need to take Storm's End quickly. Wow, this sounds weird. I've heard this before <laughs> from the skeleton crew holding it. And Connington TOV tells us that he means to take it by guile, not by force. Or at least not by direct assault. Mm -hmm. He's not throwing winches up on the wall and climbing. He has a different plan. In the Winds of Winter, it's confirmed, unbelievably, by Halden Halfmaster that his gambit has worked, and young Griff controls the castle. But George, as he always does, is posing the question back to us as readers. How exactly do you go about taking this castle no one can take? In my video, I drew connections between this exact chapter and said that George is planning to include many of the same players and concepts back, but for another unique solution to the same problem. Instead of Edric being on the outside, the person that the gates are shut for, this time he will serve as the key to opening them. The garrison, the aforementioned Elwood Meadows, even Edric, and perhaps a surprise return from Lys. Of course, much of this work is based on the, of course, much of this is based on the work uh, Old Jefferson did with his Blood of the Conqueror series on the Wars of Politics of Ice and Fire. I was reading that, and I got to the end of it, and he had. A really cool idea about the Golden Company faking to be in gold. I mean, Jeff will explain it more. <laughs> but I was like, I was reading Fire and Blood. I'm like, I think there's another cool way could George could do this and make use of this long storm prince. That being said, that's what I think is going to happen. A surprise return of Edric Storm like Viserys Targaryen in Fire and Blood. But what do you say, kind sirs? What is, how do you think Connington cracked the untakeable castle? Well, I think it's uh, the first thing to, to say is is that it's really fascinating to me that George thought that the mystery was not whether the Golden Company would take Storm's End, but how they take Storm's End. That's a cool kind of mm. type of like narrative mystery because you're like, huh, so this is like, it's not important that they actually took the castle. It's more important about how they took the castle. So having a character like Edric Storm pop in there and being utilized as the lever in order to open the gates of Storm's End, I think it works as a really interesting idea because it is mentioned in the A Dance of Dragons appendix, as you talked about in your video and in the uh, mm -hmm. essay that you have along with it, you can find on Reddit, that, uh, that there's specific mention made in the appendix that Edric Storm is alive and is in list right now. As we also know from the Song of Ice and Fire proper, we know that there's several other characters that are from lists, namely Varys, namely also... Um, uh, with Son Omar, exactly. Yeah, they're the Golden Company spy master. So they have connections to Lys. Uh, Omar's connections probably being one of the more recent ones as far as has not seemingly been back to, to Essos in, in a little bit of time, at least since he last chatted with John Connington after, uh, after he came up with a plan in order to exile him and stuff like that. So I think it's a really fascinating idea to utilize Edric Storm, and it's an interesting way to bring Edric Storm back into the story of A Song of Ice and Fire, because I don't think that George has this character living his life out in lists for the rest of his time. 
I think it's likely that we saw a version of the end state of Edric Storm in the, ver- in the version that we saw in Season 8, uh, that being Gendry Baratheon becoming the Lord of the Stormlands, becoming the next heir to the Baratheons, and that's ended up being the uh, the venue by which the Baratheon line survived through their bastard line, which, of course, is kind of tying in with what happened historically with Aegon the Conqueror and with the and with the House Durandon, who uh, continued to exist on through the female line, being married to Oris Baratheon. Um my idea, and I'll just summarize it very, very briefly, because there's a 55,000 word essay that I wrote back in 2016 about it that you guys are <laughs> welcome to uh, read at your leisure. In fact, it, it's it's required reading. Um, was that it, the Golden Company would come to Storm's End would say, hey, we're the Golden Company and we're uh, acting here on behalf of who's the, who's the guy who last was in control of Storm's End? Oh, yeah, Stannis Baratheon. We're, we were hired by Stannis Baratheon. <laughs> To come and relieve you, because as you guys well know, Stannis Baratheon is well known for hiring sellswords and sell sales because he can never attain the the loyalty of his army, and that's uh, uh, for for a very very long. So uh, that was generally my idea: is that would that John Connie would get gain entry into Storms End through claiming to be um, you know part of the Golden Company, Himself. yeah, right, yeah, <laughs> P- pretending to be the Golden Company in order to uh, at being the Golden Company in order to take Storms End, and then from there potentially. Um, massacring the people inside uh, of Storm's End, which is a possibility. I still think that could work either way for whatever theory ends up panning out. And then ultimately, I think, too, um, it's supposed to where we look at Connington in The Winds of Winter and we look at Storm's End and we look at how this is supposed to function for John Connington's story. We see that John has kind of come to this sense that he needed to be more like Tywin Lannister and less like the merciful guy who put people in crow cages at a you know, stone at the, at the Stony Step, the, the village there before there was a great battle between him and Hoster and all those folks. So uh, he thinks he needs to be more like Tywin and Storm's End could be a great way that he could demonstrate that. I think, again, it could work either way, whether my theory or Matt's theory or George has something completely you know cooked up out of the way that could be... Uh, uh, a, a lot of uh, a lot of fun. So I will pause because I've written you know twenty five million words about Storm's End and how it might fall in the Winds of Winter. And I really and I, and I do recommend you guys all check out Matt's video and read the essay if you don't want to watch watch the video. Though I would recommend watching the video because it's a. I put in so many cool sound effects of thunder. You did th- thunder, <laughs> lots of the storm, yeah, lots, lots of, of thunder, but also lots of great images and cool too. Cool music, yeah, it's all really good. What do you think, Abbott? How does Storm's End fall in the Winds of Winter? I think you're both making great points, and I think as you said, Jeff, I think they can go well together. That they can convince them they've been sent by stannis they have good allegiance here here's edric storm so you know we're you know proof of concept you know we're the good guys and then slaughter them when they get on the inside i think that that fits so well i, I love uh, what matt was saying about the comparison to viserys targaryen that returned prince in, in fire and blood i could see uh, george pulling that exact same trick and i always thought vaguely oh edric will probably come back like davos will somehow send for him at the end or something because he sent him off with a guy but this would involve him much more directly in the plot and i could see that he's been gone long enough for, for him to feel like it's a while coming back he's had new experiences and then you get like him i could see it very dramatically like him like trying to warn people about what's going to happen or him and young griff having to witness it and being haunted by it so that the, the dramatic possibilities are, are endless here and yeah you should definitely check out matt's video he does a much better job talking about it than i can um but i think yeah these um i as as, as you were saying jeff i love that that uh, george has made this kind of a whodunic and then even a whodunic kind of mystery but just like a, a practical kind of mystery not just how that they it. did how yeah how uh, how done it exactly and so it forces you to think a little a little more kind of critically and with more detail about this and that's great i do love that aspect like you're talking about when we first see this scenario we see it the other way we see the setup we see the problem george holds back the solution mm-hmm. until melisandre finally pops out the shadow baby mm-hmm. this time he is challenging us 
unbelievably with his release of a wins and winner sample chapter to go, okay, solution, problem, how are you going to do it? And it's almost yes. like a weird fan fiction, uh, like challenge from George, where there are so many options. There are different ways that uh, Connington can get in. Like I mentioned it in my video. Well, maybe you could just Davos your way in. Maybe you could find your way to the postern gate and the one that he brings Melisandre to. Maybe they're not being that awesome about it because Connington is, of course, from the Stormlands. They maybe he has knowledge of Storm's End that nobody knows, which would be kind of a cheat, but he could do it. I just I love the the way that George thinks. And it's kind of an excellent way of if you're when you're going to read The Winds of Winter, you can take this small mystery Think about what you think is going to happen and then see how George solves it. And that can give you a really good insight into the man and how he thinks. And not in like, oh, I'm going to prove awesome theories about a dream of spring. It would just increase your understanding of what George is trying to do if you can follow his thought process. So I think it's an excellent point. I think that uh, you, you brought a lot of stuff in from George's other works, which helped to just enrich a song of ice and fire and to kind of show how George thinks as, as a writer and how he portrays that thinking and line of thoughts and into a song of ice and fire proper. We do know that, uh, that George was not originally planning on writing a battle of storms End chapter that he thought that he could just kind of deal with it off page. But then he decided at WorldCon in 2011, he's like, I really should show storms end actually being in some sort of battle. And that hopefully is going to be uh, amazing and mind-blowing and will be a really cool part about the winds of winter and i think it's going to be uh it's it's, it's definitely I, I don't know about you guys but I, it's and this will be my final point is that i i feel like because the show has kind of given away much of the game in terms of how the major plot arcs for most characters will end in some fashion that i feel like the characters that do not that do are were never featured in us in game of thrones are the ones that i'm most looking forward to seeing in the winds of winter proper and of course we got george talking about some of these characters like Ario Hota, Barristan Selmy. I mean, they were existing in the show in some fashion, but probably not in the same fashion that we saw that we will see in uh, Come the Winds Winter for sure. That's true. And on your point on the battle, uh, this is something I left out of my video and I said it would be a bloodless coup, but it very well could not be. Like, for instance, uh, I believe some of the Reachmen are camped outside, mm -hmm. so they have to be dealt with somehow, either from taking the castle going out or getting past them to get in. So even with my fun Edric Key idea, there's definitely a chance for an awesome battle sequence and an action sequence from George, which um, I always enjoy reading, especially like his uh, Blackwater, his Blackwater chapters, the Battle of Fire that Jeff worked on with um, Rayo Westeros back in the day, that awesome narration that they gave. You know, he is a talented writer and he can use all these things creatively and I'm sure he will. Well, I think that is a good way to kind of wrap up this part three on Clash of Kings Davos 2. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you to those of you who have been watching our live stream for watching. We always enjoy spending some time with you guys. Thanks to Matt for coming on. Where can we find your stuff? You know, all the stuff that you are doing online these days. Well, thank you, guys. It was an exceptional pleasure to come on and talk about Stannis and Davos and how much Stannis sucks. <laughs> All the good things about he deserves the flames, he deserved the shadow baby, not redly. Uh, you can find me on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Joe Magician. Um, you can also find me on, actually I'm on Twitch. I'm on uh, twitch.tv slash Joe Magician. And I also have a, an audio podcast feed. So all the videos I make, all the pod, all the, um, the live streams I do get re-uploaded. And you can find that at the wit, wit and wisdom of Joe Magician, because I am so clever with my name. You can tell because I said it was wit and wisdom. Um, you can find that at iTunes, Spotify, all the things. Um, yeah, so if you don't want to sit around listening to this face talk for two hours, well, 
you can put it in the car while you drive. Thanks so much again for coming on, man. I mean, it's always a really, really enjoyed having you on earlier in Clash of Kings with John, and we can't wait to have you again. So we appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. So as always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-I-F. Follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at PortQuentin on Twitter or at PortQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsofpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage. Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood. Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets. Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson. Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill. Sir Way, of course. Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore. Lord Mark Connington, heir to Griffin's Roost. Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens. Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Setson Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and the Morgan. Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping. Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon, Merrifull Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, and Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies. We really appreciate your support, as always. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your support. So, join us next week for part four of A Clash of Kings Davos 2, in which Melisandre gives birth to a beautiful, beautiful baby boy, Mazel Tov just a wonderful family that's being born so out cute here. look at that punim i just want to pinch it no no that's not what it's like at all folks it's horrifying and we can't <laughs> wait for it so that'll be our final our wrap up at last to a clash of kings davos 2 at least we think for now until <laughs> we decide no i'm kidding this will be it this will be it we promise we promise this will be it so thank you so much for listening thank you to matt for joining us again and we will see you guys we all literally next week